Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here at Catch the Fire Ministries. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity of uh, speaking here in this place. And, um, you know, I, uh, I think it's important that before I speak to you that I actually earn the right to speak to you and maybe introduce myself to you a little bit, that you understand who I am and where I come from and what I stand for. And um, uh, I, I'm, I'm a, a friend of Ashling and Mike's. Ashling's mother and father were my best friends uh, many years ago. And uh, we all got saved together about 30 years ago. And I used to babysit Ashling and her, and her brothers and sisters. And, um, and uh, I was actually a, 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 I was a drug addict as well. I'll share a little bit of my testimony in a moment. But before I got my life together, I detoxed actually in Ashling's house. And that was the beginning of me changing my world, of God changing my world for me. So Mike became a friend of mine in uh, Abundant Life Church in Bradford. And uh, we did some stuff together and became friends. And it's just, I'm blessed to see of how they're uh, progressing and growing here in Catch the Fire Ministries. And how things are moving forward with them. It's an absolute miraculous journey that I watched them on. And I know some of the previous history of them both. So to see them here flourishing the way they are, it really, it, it blesses my socks off, as we say in Ireland. So thank you, Catch the Fire Ministries, for looking after Ashling and Mike. And um, it, it's just such a blessing to see. So Trish, my wife, uh, who was here with us the last time we were over, she sends her love to you all. And uh, I wish you could be here with us, but maybe the next time. And uh, so... To introduce myself to you, my name is John Edwards. Um, I have my team with me here. Martin, just give us a wave, Martin. And Dermot, who's over here as well. Dermot's from um, Tipperary in Ireland. And Martin is from England. He's from Yorkshire in England. So, so they're my friends and they're here with us as well. They're great evangelists in their own right. So it's a long way to Tipperary, yeah? <laughs> Father, I pray in the name of Jesus. That your Holy Spirit will come this morning. I call on heaven, Lord God. I put myself into your hands. And I ask you, God, in the short time we have to bring an impartation. That your Holy Spirit will come and you will touch people within this congregation. I take authority over all sickness and addiction, eating disorders and self-harm and depression. Every demonic force and satanic influence behind these things. I go out in the spirit and I take authority in this environment and atmosphere. And I declare the kingship of Christ. I declare the lordship of God Almighty. And I pray, oh God, that you move with power, God. Invisible power through this congregation. That all of us, including myself, when we leave this place this morning, we live changed. More on fire for you, Lord God. Knowing the authority we live and move and have our being in. That we can see this world changed for the glory of God. And for the freedom of the people that we reach. To honor your name, Lord God. Because you came to destroy the works of the devil. And you now live in us, as us, through us, for your glory. It is no longer we who live. It is Christ who lives within us. So we yield ourselves to you, Lord God. And we say, have your way this morning. In Jesus' mighty name. I'm Irish. I come from Dublin in the south of Ireland. My, my family were a business family, very successful business family. My father was one of the 20 highest salary paid men in the Republic of Ireland. He was the financial director of the biggest motor company in, in, in Ireland at, at, at the time when, when we were kids. We had a nice home and so on and so forth, but I was very shy and insecure as a child. I developed a bad stammer. I couldn't speak very well. In school, people tried to bully me. I was never very big, and people tried to bully me. Although, believe it or not, ladies, when I was born, I was 11 pounds. And uh, I'm not quite sure what happened since, but... I will take my word. My mother said it gave half an hour just to get bare to me head. And she said that, uh, that uh, I, was, I was such a big baby. They thought I was going to be uh, a rugby player or, or something. And then later on, they thought I was going to be a jockey. And, uh, but, <coughs> but neither came to pass. And as I grew up in, in, I've got four older sisters, Pauline, Evelyn, Maeve and Geraldine. 
And that was the beginning of my life-controlling problems, I believe, <laughs> having four big sisters. And I've got two younger brothers, Eamon and Michael. And uh, we had a, a Catholic family in, a, in Catholic Ireland. And uh, I thought God had a big stick and wanted to punish me for everything I even thought, never mind doing. And I was terrified of God, and that was the God I grew up with. Going to Mass every Sunday morning, couldn't identify with the guy behind the altar, and I terrified him, terrified in school of the, of the teachers. There was a corporal punishment back then, and they used to try and force me to speak, and I had a stammer, and I couldn't speak. They tried to force the ability they believed I had, they tried to force that ability to the surface when really I needed people to understand me. And many of you have been like that as well. And that's how my life begun. And sometimes they'd say to me, John Edwards, what's the next word in the classroom? And I wouldn't be able to say the next word, particularly if it started with a P or an S or a T or a consonant. I found it difficult to say. And Sometimes they would bring me up the front and get the cane, a big bamboo cane, and you get six of the best in my hand. Or they would make me stand out in the schoolyard on, on a drain where the rain used to go down. I'd have to stand there and wouldn't be allowed to move off it. And I used to look around me and I'd see all the other classrooms and all the other kids looking out of the classroom windows at me and the teachers looking at me. And I began to imagine what they were thinking about me. Did they think I was stupid? Did they think I was small? Did they think I was ugly? Did they think I was no good? All these thoughts began to go through my mind and my self-image began to form. All of you began to do the same thing. You began to look at yourself through other people's eyes. I don't know quite how you did it, but this is how I began to do it. And my self-esteem might as well have drained out from under my feet and down that drain that I was standing on. Confidence left me. My stammer grew worse. I learned how to look after myself and people tried to bully me out. If I couldn't beat them up, I would get a plank, a two-by-four timber plank, and I'd smack them over the back of the head when they weren't looking. And I got a bit of a reputation of being a bit of a crazy guy. I did things a little bit differently. You see, in the midst of this, I was God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works that he had prepared in advance for me to do. And it's only in hindsight I can see that. At the time, I didn't know who Christ was. But what the enemy means for harm, God turns for good, even in our testimonies. And it's important we look back in our testimonies and see the diamonds and the golden nuggets that are back there. And not just look back at the hard times. And not just blame things that happened that caused us to be the way that we are today. But to look back at the diamonds that God deposited in our life. And I look back then and I can see now how God has turned everything around and worked everything together for the good because he loves me. I didn't know it though at the time, I was broken. I attended secondary school. And there was a group of guys down the road who were attending the local community centre. There was bands like Thin Lizzy used to play. They were beginning bands like Thin Lizzy and the Boomtown Rats. And I began to listen to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and other bands like that. I used to love that music. And these guys were smoking marijuana and taking LSD. And I heard my mother was taking Valium to help her with the anxiety that she struggled with because of my father's drinking. He used to drink to help him cope with the pressures of business. With my shyness and in secondary school, having to prove myself all over again, I went to my mother's handbag and I took a Valium tablet. And it worked. That knot of anxiety and tension and stress that I had in my belly, it seemed to dissipate with that one little yellow tablet that I took. But little did I know that 20 years later, I'd be taking up to 150 of these pills a day. 750 milligrams of Valium. Little did I know back then that I was going to end up on the streets of London begging for a living and sticking needles into my veins, heroin, even injecting alcohol into my veins. I've overdosed like 20 times. I've been in comas for three and four days at a time with tubes keeping my heart going, with tubes all over my body and machines keeping my lungs breathing, my heart going. I've been in mental institutions ten times. I know what it's like to be in a padded cell in a straitjacket. I know what it's like to be sexually abused and physically abused. I watched many of my friends dying and going to their funerals wondering who's going to be next. But of course it's never going to be me. 
Because you never think it's going to be you. I thought, I, I, I'm too wise. And one by one, my friends began to die. And then unfortunately, through dirty needles, I got hepatitis C, which is a blood-borne virus, and I began to get sick. I went to live in London when my best friend died, and while living in London, my father died, and I was barred from my father's funeral. My family wouldn't let me go to my dad's funeral. And the morning my father was buried, I was down a back alley in London, in a place called Housden, just outside the West End of London. I was down a back alley drinking. In the morning, my father got buried. And I wasn't in touch with my emotions at all. My emotions had left me a long time ago. I took drugs and drank. Whatever drug or drink was going, I would take it. I didn't even think about overdosing. But as a power, the power of God was keeping me alive through all these times. It's inexplicable how I'm still here. Man, I've had a liver transplant. I've had cancer twice. I've had hepatitis C. I've had 41 pints of blood transfused into my body just three years ago to keep me alive. But yet, at 63 years of age, I can still run a half marathon. I can, I've done 70 marathons. I've, I've done incredible things because God's power is working in me. It's greater than any sickness. It's greater than any drug addiction. The morning my father was buried, I was down this back alley and I was thinking about the funeral of my dad back in Dublin, in Ireland, the big Catholic funeral. And I knew exactly where the casket would be. And I knew where my mother and my sisters and brothers would be sitting. And for the first time in many years, tears came into my eyes. And the old tramp I was with, he noticed it and he said, he said, what's the matter? My nickname was Irish. I don't know why. <laughs> he said, hey, Irish, what's the matter with you? And I said, nothing. And I changed the subject like we do. We don't want to show our emotions. And I pushed them down to that place. That it feels like it's down here. That place where we push the rejection and the abuse. Sexual, mental, physical abuse. It's all piled, crammed in this place. And I changed the subject and I was talking about other things. And we were drinking and taking drugs. And as the drinking drugs was coming on a bit more, my mind began to drip back to Dublin. Again, imagining the funeral, seeing my neighbours, Mrs. Kelly and... Mrs. Barry and Mrs. Murphy and all these people who would have been at the funeral. And this time, tears didn't just come out in my eyes. They streamed down my face. Because I'm human, just like you are. And you know something? We've been through some stuff. And the old tramp looked at me and he said, Irish, what's the matter? Tell me. And for the first time in years, I began to talk about my stuff. And I broke and I wept like a little baby and that tramp got a hold of me. And he pulled me to himself and I buried my head in his left shoulder. I can remember the smell of his dirty brown coat. And I wept like a baby. And he comforted me. And he said, come on, Irish. He says, you're a good man. He said, I can tell you come from a good background. He said, you've got to come off the streets before you die. You've got to go home and get your life together. It took me a year to gather the strength to go back home to Ireland. The shame and the guilt that I lived with. I used to write home to my mother and father. I used to project that everything was okay. Dear mom and dad, everything's going well over here in London. I've got a beautiful girlfriend. I've got a nice flat or apartment. I've got a good job. But I had none of those things. And my parents weren't stupid. They knew. But a year after my dad died, I went home. You see, the morning I missed the funeral, that was my rock bottom. I couldn't take anymore. I just couldn't take anymore. And some of you are in that place this morning. Whatever's going on in your world, in your business, in your mental state, with your family, with your kids, with depression, whatever, you just cannot take anymore. But when I was in that situation, I felt like I had two choices. One was to finish my life. And the other one was to put the effort to stand up on the inside and battle the things that were trying to destroy me. And I went home. And I went to my mother's house, thought I'd surprise her. I had long hair at the time. I was about seven stone in weight, which is a little over 80 pounds. And when my mother opened up the front door of the house, her face fell when she saw the state of me. My teeth were kicked out. I had abscesses in my arms and legs from dirty needles. And she broke down crying. And she said, oh, son, 
She said, look at the state of you. And then she put her arms out like any mother does. And she gave me one of those great big mother hugs. And she held me so tight. She said, you know, John, she said, the last time you were home, you overdosed. And you were in Jervis Street Hospital in Dublin. She said, I could hear you once again in the emergency room and the gurgling of the machine pumping your stomach out. She said, I fell on my knees outside the emergency room. I said, God, please take John home because he can't take anymore. And she said, John, I got to be honest. I said to God that I couldn't take anymore either. I wanted you to go home to heaven. Before my mother died a few years ago, I was able to say, Mom, God answered your prayer. He didn't take me home to heaven, but he took me home to Christ. And he gave me new life. And before she died, she was so proud of me. Well, when I stayed in her house, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And in here, I couldn't get the program. You see, they talk about God as you understand him in the third step. And I, the God I understood had a big stick and I couldn't relate to him. I thought he wanted to punish me. There are people dead today because I introduced them to drugs. I didn't kill them. I didn't force them to take the drugs. But they're dead. And there's a conscious guilt that lives in the back of your mind for stuff that we feel responsible for. And all that was hanging about. And I thought that, you know, hell was my destiny. That God wouldn't want to know John Edwards. But there were Christians in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Narcotics Anonymous. And they were beautiful people. It was like there was a glow off them. And I asked them once, what church do you go to? And they went to this charismatic meeting in a hotel near where Ashling lives, in Dublin, near Port Marnock, where Ashling lived. And I went out to this meeting in, 19, in August 1987. I was taking 150 volume a day, and I'd be driving a motorbike in a car and all those drugs. Because I, I, was just, I wasn't getting stoned anymore, even on that amount of drugs. But when you take that, amu- that amount of benzodiazepine, you get into a catch-22 situation where if you stop taking them, you take convulsions and you stop breathing. But if you keep taking them, they begin to work in the opposite way and you get nervous and panic attacks on the drugs. So you're caught in a very frightening place where you can't take them and you can't stop taking them. I needed a miracle. I went to this meeting in August 1987 and there was beautiful worship music like what we played this morning. And some guy gave his life story and it was powerful. But nothing else happened. The next month, September 1987, I wonder, could I have a, a bit of water, actually? In 1987, uh, September, I went back and, uh, thank you. I went back and... Um, This time I decided I was going to do business with God if he was real. I remember being brought up Catholic, I bought a second-hand suit because I thought you had to dress up to meet God. <laughs> and a second-hand shirt. I remember I ironed this suit so it was kind of shiny. <laughs> and I got the 31 bus out to Hoth in Dublin. I went to this meeting and I was nervous because I had tried rehabilitation centers. I had tried psychiatrists and counselors. I had tried Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and even Gamblers Anonymous. If it had Anonymous on the end of it, I went to it. (laughs) Hoping something would help me. And I went with fear and trepidation into this meeting. And believe it or not, I'm actually quite shy. I'm bold and I'm radical, but I'm shy. And during the worship in that meeting, I went to the back of the room And I began to talk to God. And I said, God, I don't even know if you're real. But I just can't take anymore. I'm taking all these drugs and drinking. Nothing is working for me. But I said, if you're as real as these Christians are saying, you must have seen me when I was sexually and physically and mentally abused. You must have seen me, God, when I was in the mental institutions, in the padded cells, when they wouldn't listen to me and just threw me in when I was taking convulsions, detoxing. You must have seen that, God. You must have seen me sleeping in the freezing cold streets of London in Charing Cross and Piccadilly and Soho begging for a living. Too sick to even beg sometimes. You must have seen me, God. You must have seen me at all my friends' funerals. You must have seen me there, God. I said, I don't even know how to contact you. I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell if you're real. 
But I said, if you're as real and as loving as that music says, and as these Christians say you are, I said, please, please reveal yourself to me because I can't take any more and I don't know where else to go. Suddenly, it was like the roof came off that building and the power of God came rushing in like a mighty wind and it hit me in the top of the head. I went shooting down through the, like a train down through the inside of my body and something snapped in the pit of my stomach and a long, big, dark shadow came up through my chest. My neck all swole up real big and a long, dark, like big, long dark came out that side of my head and I let a scream as it came out and the power of God hit me and I got born again. My eyes got open and I could see Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago shedding his blood for all my sin and that night I got set free from the power of sin and death and my life began to change my whole world began to change I was with Ashling's father and mother Jean and Alan they were my best friends things began to turn around and uh, I went to a Christian rehabilitation I went to Bible school first of all Got kicked out of Bible school, been stoned in the classroom. <laughs> and then I went to a Christian meeting once, stoned, and the preacher came down to pray for me, and I was so stoned. I, when you're a little guy, you have to learn how to defend yourself, right? And this preacher came down to pray for me, and I kicked him. <laughs> and then I jumped on him, and I beat him up, and the elders, elders are not very good at fighting. <laughs> and I beat all the elders up. And they tried to kick me out of the building, but I grabbed two of them and tried to fling them over a fire escape. They locked me out and I ran down the stairs, the fire escape stairs, and went around the front of the building and back in again. They could see me coming, so they locked the door. But that wasn't going to stop me. There was glass panes in the door, and I kicked through the glass panes, ripping a vein in my leg open. And I ran in and I lost a lot of blood and I collapsed. And I woke up the next morning in hospital from loss of blood. And when I woke up, sitting around my bed, were these men and women with black eyes <laughs> and bruises. And, and they were praying in tongues. I thought I was in the DTs. <laughs> and they turned to me and they told me, you see, I couldn't even remember what I'd done that night, but I still can't remember it. It's just a haze. And they told me what I had done. There's nothing like the shame of an alcoholic or a drug addict. And they said, John, we want you to know we see great potential in you. We don't just see your problems. We believe that God has called you to be an evangelist and to lead many, many people to Christ. And we're going to stick with you till we see you coming through. That's why I loved coming here to... That's why I love coming here to catch the fire ministries in November. And going down to the homes of people not far from here. And meeting pe people like him and Zoe. And some of the other people we met down there. It was such a blessing for me. God told me many years ago. That if I would go and reach the people that nobody else will reach. That God would put me in front of the people that everybody wants to be in front of. And so I stand here today. Yesterday on the plane coming up here, I, I evangelized everybody. I evangelized the stewardess in the plane. Shared my testimony with her while she was giving me a cup of tea. And the power of God hit her. 30,000 feet in the air. <laughs> and when we left the plane, she ran after us and she stopped me. And we laid hands on her and prayed with her. And she told me, she's quite an influential person. She's a doctor as well. And she emailed me last night. And she called me through contacts she has. I'm now invited to speak in Princeton University. In, in, in a place up there. In, in May, I believe, when I come back over here. If, if we will go to the, play, the people that nobody else would go to. God will open up the doors to the greatest places that you can imagine that you'd ever speak in. I've got a word in my heart that I want to share. That's who I am. Today, I've opened up seven rehabilitation centers. I've had up to 35 staff and a budget of over a million pounds a year. I've um, 
started a ministry of called Walking Free when I finished rehab. I was the first Irish man to do the Teen Challenge program 28 years ago. I'm 28 years clean now. I <laughs> Praise God. When I was running rehabs, I began to feel lonely and I began to pray that God would give me a wife. You see, I'm hopeless at chatting girls up. So I read a book by Young E. Cho called The Fourth Dimension and he talked about praying specifically. So I wrote down 22 things that I was looking for in the girl I was going to marry. I didn't want her to be six foot six, for example. I didn't want her to be an ex-drug addict. I wanted her to have her own teeth. No, I'm only kidding. I didn't write that one down at all. <laughs> I want, she had to be a Christian, of course. She had to be willing to take people into her home that we can detox and help and love on people, to take prostitutes and drug addicts and gangsters into our house. And one day I was driving through, I had a rehab in Scotland in a town called Largs. Largs is the town where the Vikings were defeated in 1262. And I lived in that town. And I was driving through the town and the Holy Spirit spoke and said, stop your car and go in that little Nazarene church in the corner. And I walked in and this girl served me a cup of coffee. And I thought, man, she's gorgeous. And she looked like an angel. That girl was Patricia. And I married her just over a year later. I've learned John 5.19 is the word in my life. Even the son could do nothing of himself. But he only did what he could see the father doing. And that's the way we live our life. I still live on the streets today. In the winter and in the summer. I live with the homeless. We did it in Dublin recently with 250 homeless people. We fed them for a few days and we brought them into a canteen that we got from a business and we had doctors and, and beauticians and hairdressers. We did their hair, the prostitutes, these broken girls. We brought them in and we loved on them, treated them with dignity and respect and honor. We fed them and we clothed them. We prayed with them. And all 250 people invited Christ into their heart that day. And that's how we live our life. I'm so burdened to reach people in the early days. And I'm praying that you'd open your heart while I'm speaking to you. God's imparting stuff to you. He'll give you burdens for people while I'm speaking. Way back in the early days when I finished Teen Challenge, and I, I went back to live on the streets as a volunteer, I voluntarily lived on the streets. The same streets that I used to beg in, in Piccadilly and Soho. I lived in the doorways there in the winter and the summer. The nickname they gave me then was the Apostle John. And man, we used to sleep in these, I wouldn't sleep in any doorway. I used to sleep in the doorway of the Adelphi Theatre, no less. Because you got a lot of heat coming out under the door because it's open late. And we used to be in there and I'd have up to 20 homeless people in there with me. We'd be having prayer meetings at two o'clock in the morning in, in Piccadilly and Soho in London. The glory of God began to fall in these places. And I remember when I was in there, I used to think, God, there's more people we need to reach. How am I going to reach them? I had no money. I was living on 25 pounds a month at the time, living by faith. We still live by faith. We still trust God for everything. We did. We, 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 um, I, I prayed and said, God, how can I reach people all over Ireland and the United Kingdom? And I began to look at my assets. I had no money. I had no car. I had no push bike even. I had no bicycle. And God showed me that I got two strong legs. And I can run and I can walk. So I walked the length and breadth of Wales. Then I walked the length and breadth of Britain. I did a marathon a day and preached every day in schools and preached in churches and at night in house groups. Then I walked with former paramilitaries from the IRA and the UVF from Belfast to Dublin. Began to lead some of these gangsters to Christ, these terrorists to Christ. Then I walked the length and breadth of Ireland. Then in the year 2000, God said... I had a vision about America of calamities happening over here in the end times. And God said, walk across the nation for I give it to you. So I come over here and I walked from Santa Monica to New York with a wooden cross on my shoulder, 11 foot long. People used to say, Jesus didn't have a wheel on the end of his cross. And I said, well, Jesus didn't walk across America. The media got a hold of it. It spoke to millions of people all over the world. 
President Bush heard about it and he sent me a letter thanking me and we got an invitation into the White House. Remember, if you go to the people that nobody else will go to, God will put you in front of the people that everybody wants to be in front of. I'm reading a book at the moment. It's called Think Like a Freak. That gives you a bit of an insight into how I think. Then I made a coffin. No, sorry, I got a coffin from an undertaker, a casket, a cremation one, so it was light. And I cut it in half, so it's the full length of a coffin, but it's, instead of it being that thick, it's only that thick. And I put straps on it. And my friend Kelvin used to travel with me, and he put the coffin on his back. And I'd have the cross, and we'd walk through some of the most dangerous places in Ireland and the UK. I remember being in Aberdeen in Scotland and I couldn't even walk more than 100 metres because of the crowds around me saying, what are you doing carrying a coffin? I put a door in the coffin and I'd say, you want to see what's inside it? And they'd open the door and they'd look in and there's a mirror in it. So people would see themselves and say, oh my God, I can see myself in a coffin. I said, exactly. And you're going to end up on one of them one day. But before you do, you need to meet the cross. And I'd be standing there with the 11-foot-long cross. And we led thousands upon thousands of people to Christ in this radical way. Now, this is already challenging your thinking. Then I made the world's biggest syringe. It's 33 feet long by 6 foot in diameter. And printed across the back of it is injecting hope into society. It's got a bedroom in it so I can sleep in it if I need to. Got to think of your budget. <laughs> you see, and I'm serious. Faith is doing what you can do. You don't have to wait for the finance to do it. You're obedient to the voice of God. And some of you need to hear that. You don't look to the church to provide for what God wants you to do. You look to God for what he wants you to do. And God will provide you with all that you need to do the ministry. We traveled 60,000 miles and led tens of thousands more people to Christ. Then I made a bigger coffin. It's eight foot long by a meter high and a meter wide. And I buried it in Halifax in England. And I lived in this coffin for three days. Why would you do something crazy like that, John? Because I've had to bury so many people so many of the people I work with, they die through accidental overdose or they're murdered, kicked to death or murdered in some way. And a couple of years ago, I was lowering another person into the grave that I led to the Lord and taken into my home and detoxed them. I was lowering this person in the grave. His name was Paul. I remember thinking to myself, I was seeing all his friends around the, 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 the edge of the grave and thinking, Paul, if you had a message for your friends, what would you say to them? And that question was ringing in my mind for weeks after Paul's funeral. And I began to think about a message from the grave. If only somebody would speak from the grave. Somebody who's come through their lifestyle could speak from the grave. And I thought, why don't I do it? God put it in my heart to make a coffin. Can you even hear God speaking to you in radical ways like that? Can you even go beyond the boundaries of how you normally live and begin to hear God for strategy that's way above and beyond anything that you've ever experienced ever in your life? And I made this coffin. I buried it in Halifax in my friend Martin's church. We spoke to 28 million people all over the UK. The media got a hold of it and it went crazy. Then I got buried in East Belfast. It's live streaming, so I've got to be careful what I say. For a Catholic, a former Catholic to get buried in East Belfast is an answer to some people's prayers. And I got buried in East Belfast in, in Protestant paramilitary territory. People got in touch with the team and said they were coming to kill me. But I stayed in the coffin. And some paramilitaries rose up and protected me. We spoke to over 100 million people. China, all over South America, Australia, Russia, Belarus, Latvia, Lithuania. Romania, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Belgium, Holland, France, Spain, Portugal, 
Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, all of them. You see, in the coffin, there's live streaming. I've got electricity and fiber optic broadband in my coffin. I pimped my coffin. And it's got a mattress in it. And I've got a GoPro camera right in front of me. So the second, I go under, five foot underground. And the lids put on, they bury me. My wife buries me sometimes very enthusiastically. And uh, by the way, when I met Tricia, she had four kids. That wasn't one of the 22 things. So I was single for 42 years and overnight there were six of us. That was more traumatic than coming off heroin. All right. We got four grandbabies now. Three grandsons and a granddaughter, Melissa. So if they're watching this, hi guys, I love you and I miss you. When I get in the coffin, the team on the surface presses a button and the GoPro camera goes live. And I say, hello, world. John Edwards here. I'm bringing you words of life from the grave. Please listen to what I have to say so that you too don't end up in a premature grave. Let me tell you about my life story. Let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. Millions, over 140 million people. Then God said, do it in America. So I got somebody to make a coffin in New Jersey. I didn't even have anywhere to get buried. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? I felt so rejected. Uh, didn't have even anywhere to get buried. And suddenly, I'd written to President Trump, told him I wanted to meet him. I wanted to speak to him about the opiate problem in America because I'm very familiar with statistics over here, having walked across. And I pray for the states. I've got a big map of America. I've got the Bill of Rights. I've got the Constitution on my wall in my office. I've got soil from walking across America. All the states are walked across in a Gatorade bottle on my office. I've got a big rock off the Grand Canyon that I robbed. <laughs> I've, got, I've got lots of American stuff. And I've got acorns from outside the White House in Capitol Hill. I've walked around the White House. I've walked around Capitol Hill praying that God will bless this country because God put America in my heart 23 years ago. And I've been doing it ever since. Suddenly, three days before I flew over, and we didn't even have the money to do it. We put our rent into it. We put next, we put every single penny that we have into it. And we come over, and we were coming over here three days before I left. President Trump comes on the television and says, he's declaring a national emergency around the opiate problem. And then he changed it to a public health emergency. And I saw that. And a man called Rodney Howard Brown, a pastor, had seen me once and heard about me. And he, I was at a meeting he was doing, and he, heard, he came up to me and he took my phone off me. He said, I want to put my number in your phone. So I texted him. I said, Pastor Rodney, I'm coming to America. I said, President Trump has just, uh, has just announced an emergency around the opiate problem. And I said, God's telling me to come over. He phoned me five minutes later and asked me to get buried in his campus in Tampa, Florida. When we got buried in Tampa, Florida, Fox News heard about it. And Jen Epstein, the Fox News anchor, came down to interview me. I'm in the coffin. There's a tube that comes from the coffin for airflow and for food coming down. She's speaking down the tube to me. She said, Mr. Edwards, she says, I can't believe I'm speaking to a man in a coffin. She said, I didn't want to come down here today. She said, I didn't know. I thought you were some, some crazy Irish man. I had no idea what you were really doing. And she spoke to me and I shared my testimony with her. And she began to get moved by God. She reached her hand down the tube and I reached my hand up from the bottom. And the grave met with the earth and I prayed with Jen Epstein, the news anchor of Fox News in Tampa and Orlando. And then she said, John, I'm so glad I came down here. She said, you don't know this, but I'm in recovery myself. She said, my sponsor in AA committed suicide yesterday. She said, I'm in the right place today. Then the camera went live. She turned around. She said, hello, uh, I'm Jen Epstein. You all know me as news anchor on Fox News. Under my feet today, I've got a man called John Edwards who's living in a coffin. And he's bringing a message. But before I interview John, I want to tell you, I've never told my viewers this before, but I'm a recovering drug addict. She shared it live on Fox News. She said, I've been seven years in recovery. 
and I'm here to meet this man. And I'm absolutely blessed to talk to John Edwards from Walking Free USA and his team. And it went viral all over the United States of America. Television stations from New York phoned him, but all over, the, all over America. And people got in touch from California. Two and a half thousand media outlets in California sent it all over the world again. Now I'm going back. I've been invited to, you might remember two years ago, there was a shooting in a nightclub called the Pulse nightclub. I was down the day before yesterday, down outside the Pulse, and I found a church across the road from me, and I'm getting buried in the most, it's this, Dermot, you tell me, it's the seventh most dangerous street in the United States of America. I'm getting buried in May, an orange blossom trail across the road from the Pulse nightclub, and we're going to reach the gay community. We're going to reach the transgenders. We're going to love on them. We're going to bless those people. We're going to live. We're going to go into the crack dens. We're going to go into the crack dens. We're going to meet the gangsters. We're going to meet these people. And you know something? We're going to lead them to Christ. Oh, but John, that's dangerous. No, it ain't. When I'm in the will of God, nobody can touch me. I'm beyond the reach of anybody touching me. And God gives me a boldness. To, I'll knock on the door of those crack dens. I'll knock on the door of those crack dens. I'll meet those drug dealers. And you know something? They're going to get saved. I will meet you again. And I will tell you what happened in that place. And they will get saved. Even if they try and shoot me, they will not be able to. Number one, I, got, n- 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 number one, I-, I know God's protection. And number two, we're going to have armed guards. <laughs> I might be a nut, but I'm screwed to the right bolt. Come on. Hallelujah. Father, impart this to the people, Lord. Let the fire of God fall upon people. Lord, this is catch the fire ministries. Let them catch this fire. Lord, from heaven they'll be poured down individuals to this congregation. Come, Holy Spirit, and do it, I pray in Jesus' name. In John 8, in the message, I'm just watching my time here. I've got about five minutes, have I? In John 8, in the message, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's telling them, they're questioning who Jesus is. And he tells them, he said, you live by what you see, touch and taste. He says, I live beyond your horizons. Think about that. You live by what you see, touch and taste. I live beyond your horizons. Think about Peter walking on the water. Jesus said, come. Peter didn't walk on the water. He walked on the word of God. But when Peter saw the winds and the waves, when he sensed, when he lived by his senses, he couldn't walk in the deep places of God. And God's asking us in the 21st century to die to our senses, to die to fear. We've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And it's time to rise up on the inside. We will be people who put our senses at the foot of the cross and we begin to live and move and have our being in Christ. And go boldly into the places that God leads us to go. And I guarantee you, you'll see miracles happen. And God will, you'd go to the people nobody else would go to. And you will end up in front of presidents. You'll end up in front of leaders, business leaders. You'll end up in front of the people that you dream of being in front of. You'll have to have two and three services here. In this book, it tells a story about English football, soccer. If you take a penalty in English soccer... The goal is 12, 12 meters away from where the bo- football is. Most people, if they're right-footed, they kick into the left corner. If you're left-footed, you kick into the right corner. The goalie watches what way you're going to do because the ball travels at 80 miles an hour and the goalie doesn't have time to jump before you kick. So he guesses which way you're going to kick and then he jumps whatever way, he dives whatever way he thinks you're going to kick. Statistics tell us that the greatest way of scoring a goal from a penalty it should shoot straight down the middle because hardly any goalie will stand still. And the gospel I'm preaching is a gospel that's straight down the middle. A penalty kick that's taken straight down the middle is statistically 7, 7% more successful than a penalty kick taken to the right or to the left. And we've got to get our gospel lined up in such a way that our gospel has gone straight down the middle, that we're not ashamed of the gospel, where we're going out there in the streets to bring the message of God in ways like we've never brought it before. What would happen if a group of ladies got together and maybe made the world's biggest handbag? 
and they lived in it for three days. <laughs> and just chatted as women do. And it was live streaming around the world and you're sharing your testimonies. I guarantee you millions of people would watch. I guarantee you everybody in this community would hear about it. One of the reasons people don't take the penalty shot straight down the middle, they know the statistics that they're much better chance of winning if they go straight down the middle, but they don't do it because of their reputation. The reason they don't shoot down the middle is because if they do shoot down the middle and the goal happens to get saved by the goalkeeper, they will never live it down. People will say, you are so stupid to shoot straight down the middle. Why didn't you go to the right or to the left? And much outreach that I see, not here, you're different. Much outreach that I see is kicking to the right and is kicking to the left. We come over and we go straight down the middle. And I'm praying that you catch that vision. That from Catch the Fire Ministries, you bring, begin to bring the gospel straight down the middle. Amen. When you get a liver transplant and you have cancer twice, Ashley remembers me. She visited me in hospital with my liver transplant. I've been delivered. <laughs> All right. When you go through that and when you face death, I was given at one time four months to live. Something wonderful happens when you're in that place. There's the grace of God that comes upon you when you need it, not before. When you're told, you've had, when I've been told I've had cancer a few times, there's the grace comes upon you. And there's something happens to you that you will do whatever it takes to reach as many people as possible while you still have breath in your body. And I pray that that's what will happen to you today. That whatever is imparted from me to you today, that you will do from this church whatever it takes to reach this neighborhood. And I know there are thousands of people waiting out there for Catch the Fire Ministries to reach out to. You are carrying something special. During that worship there, and even the prayer time beforehand, there is an anointing and a presence of God here that you're probably so used to it, you maybe have come familiar with it. I'm not saying you have, you might have. But it's so special what you're carrying here. You're carrying the fire of God. You're not too concerned about what other people think. You're positioned perfectly to bring this message to the world that the world is dying to see. So as I finish, I, I pray. We've opened the Smith Wigglesworth Center in Bradford his original church, recently. I do Wigglesworth tours. I brought, I brought a tour out recently with 11 young people. Two of them lay on Wigglesworth's grave as we stood there. The next Saturday, eight days later, they got killed in a car crash. And their team leader rang me and said, will I come down to the morgue to pray for them for the resurrection of the dead? I didn't have the faith to do it. But I went down anyway. And I prayed. They didn't get resurrected from the dead. But at least I had the courage to try it. And it made it worse when I saw his last Facebook post said that he believes that God will raise the dead again. And all that week God spoke to me about raising the dead and the new possibilities that God was to bring into my life. And I pray that you will step across as I pray now. I pray that you will step across the line into all the possibilities that God has for you that you begin to think like a freak, that you begin to think outside the box. I'm not advertising this book. I just think it's a great name for a book. That you begin to think differently. I guarantee you that it brings you into a realm where you're walking with God, where supernatural stuff happens. Man, nearly every restaurant that we get in, our server gets saved. Every place that we go, the laundrette, the woman gets saved. Everywhere we're going, they're getting saved. Because we live beyond the boundaries of the normal. So I would like everybody just to bow your head and I'm going to really pray. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would come, Lord. 
oh God, that you would touch your people. I pray, Father, that people will begin to step out, step across that line, God, into the reality of the move of God that is available. To a living beyond the boundaries of what we've set, unknowingly even to ourselves. I pray, God, that people within their hearts and within their minds would take that step. I pray, God, that you would so touch people in a, by the power of the Holy Ghost, God, that something would intrinsically change within their, their very being. Lord, set your people free, God, from all that binds the effects of abuse and addiction and brokenness and eating disorders. That they move into a realm, God, that they've dreamt about. A realm that they've not experienced, but today, Lord, usher them in, please. Lord, you know the plans you have for these people. You know what it is you want to do with them, Lord God. And I pray, Father, that from the leadership down to the newest person in this place, that you would move so powerfully. Set them free, Lord God, and give them strategy for reaching this nation that blows apart anything that they've ever experienced up to this time, Lord God. Father, we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. If there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, if you've never committed your life to God like what I'm talking about this morning, and you would like to do that this morning, I would ask you to just put your hand up and show me. If you don't know that if you were to die today, whether you would end up in heaven, you need to invite Christ into your life this morning. For he died at Calvary 2,000 years ago and shed his blood so that you could be saved. If you want to invite Christ into your life, I ask you to raise your hand. And let me see you this morning so I can pray for you. I'm looking around the meeting. Over here, anybody? Anybody in this hall here? You've never invited Jesus Christ into your heart. You want to do so this morning. See this hand over here. Is there one or two other people? You can put your hand back down again. The other people down here at the back, in the middle. Father, bless your people. Just pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died 2,000 years ago, that you shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sin. Lord, I give my life to you. I ask you to come into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. Father, heal me from all my brokenness, all my pain, I give myself to you completely. I turn my life around. I let go of the behavior that's not been good in your sight. And Lord, help me to walk with you in a way that pleases your heart from this moment as I give myself to you completely. Father, I ask you this in Jesus' mighty name.